Welcome to Everything STEAM. I'm your host, Sam Stanford. As a physicist and structural engineer in training with Jacobs Engineering, I've made many connections with some bright individuals who are either working, studying, or self-taught and passionate about our particular topics of discussion. In the Earth's 4.6 billion years of existence and the time that life has been around, there have been six confirmed mass extinctions. In this episode, we plan to cover all of them, from the Ordovician all the way to what you are living in right now. In three fact-packed segments, our guest stars and I plan to address how we know these mass extinctions have happened, how they have happened, how much disappearance they've caused, and finally, how they changed the course of life. History, paleontology, climatology, physics, astronomy, geology, and many other topics will be highlighted in the discussion. And yes, we will talk about dinosaurs. So speaking of our guest stars, first meet Katie Parsons. Katie is a paleo artist, paleontologist, and geology student graduating in December from Middle Tennessee University and has been working for four years at the Earth Experience Museum in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Katie focuses her studies and work on the late Cretaceous dinosaurs in the Hell Creek Formation and specializes in their fossil reproduction. You can find some of her work on Instagram at katie.digs.dinos. Our other guest star is Trevor Rempert. Trevor is a master's student at Case Western Reserve University studying medical physiology. Prior to his current education, he received an undergraduate degree at Northwestern University in biomedical engineering. In addition to studying medicine, Trevor is an avid avocational paleontologist whose hobby has taken him across the United States in search of fossils. Trevor's most recent project involves studying the biodiversity of mosasaurs in the late Cretaceous of Morocco just prior to the KT extinction. You can find Trevor on social media at TFF underscore Prefectus. Okay, now that you've met our guest stars and know what this episode is all about, we're going to hop into our first commercial. And when we return, you'll get to know the geologic timescale along with the first two mass extinctions that occurred in Earth's history. Hey everyone, welcome to the first segment of Earth's Mass Extinctions. Before we get into things, I just wanted to go ahead and thank Katie and Trevor for being on the show. So thank you for your time. Thank you for having us. This is awesome. Yeah, it's great to be here. Awesome. Well, let me open up the conversation just by asking the both of you, why do you think mass extinctions are fascinating? Because I'm sure the people listening are thinking that mass extinctions are quite scary. And it's pretty easy to feel like it's an alternative reality in some aspects, since us humans only live for a blink of an eye in the geologic or at large, the cosmological timescales. So why are they fascinating? So at least for me personally, it's just interesting because we've had five major mass extinctions, um, supposedly five, there is debate of a sixth currently going on. But largely, it's an opportunity to look back, you know, compare one mass extinction to another, look for patterns. And that way we can use what we have in the rock record, the knowledge that we have, uh, the evidence that we have it, to apply towards what is happening now and any future disasters that could happen in the future. It's just something that we can look at, distinguish a pattern and apply later. I like to study mass extinctions because it's very interesting to see the success and failure of different organisms. Organisms that may be particularly well adapted to a certain environment, as soon as that environment changes, the fitness can just completely flip. And suddenly an adapted trait that increases fitness is just very detrimental. I also think that it's really interesting to see that after an extinction event, the survivors would generally have a period of just 
diversity like crazy, where life experiments with a whole bunch of different forms. And the new forms are really interesting because not the most efficient for surviving in the environment, but they're really weird. I echo that. Well, great. Let's jump into the first part of this segment and talk about the geologic timescale. The geologic timescale is one of a few important timescales that the science community uses, like the cosmic or universal timescale that I previously mentioned. But the geologic timescale focuses on the Earth's development over time. So, Katie, when did this timescale start and how do we know the Earth is that old? So Earth is estimated to be about 4.6 billion years old. Now, this is backed up largely by isotopic dating done on asteroids and meteorites, really, really old asteroids and meteorites, as well as soil and rock samples. Now, are you talking as far as when they started developing the geologic timescale? Because that would be about in the 1800s. No, I think I was just kind of talking about when the geologic timescale started, not like when we conceptualized it as human beings, because the geologic timescale starts pretty much the exact time where localized materials in the universe began to pull together and superimpose and create a pretty much a molten spheroid where lighter things surface and heavier things fall to the core. Yeah, generally most of what I've seen. Now, this is from the perspective of someone who is currently a geology student. You know, this is what the future generation of professional geologists, paleontologists, or other scientists are being taught. Generally, we start about 4.6 billion years ago with the birth of the Earth, because that's what's relative to us. Um, Now, planetary geologists may do something different, but I'm not acquainted with their processes. Um, But yeah, that's generally about where we started is 4.6 billion years ago. And of course, way before the presence of life on Earth. Right. And you pointed out that it's asteroids or comet impacts that we use to understand that relatively how old the Earth is, because ultimately, because of plate tectonics, it's hard to, you know, measure that otherwise. Yeah, and during the formation of the Earth anyways, there there was a stage for several, I think a billion years or so, where Earth was basically just a molten ball of lava floating through space. And at this point in time, there was pretty much a hailstorm of meteorites and asteroid impacts that stayed on the Earth that we can use those isotopic dating methods on, which is what we do. Right, and wasn't that like Greek origin, the Hadean? Yes. Yeah, I believe so, because I think that's actually used in the geologic timescale to define the beginning of time. Right. You know, as we know it, that's relative to us and our Earth. Right. How does the science community distinguish time frames in the geologic timescale? Because 4.6 billion years is a long time. Trevor, could you give some insight to that? Sure. So that 4.6 billion years is divided into a whole bunch of different subsections. And those subsections are of different size. The larger ones are called eras. And then there's periods, uh, epics, uh, some of the more famous ones. So like you, you hear the dinosaurs were living during the Triassic, Jurassic, Cretaceous. The current one we're in is called Holocene. That's an epic. And what these different subsections represent is that they're periods of time where the fossils or the rock are similar. And these rocks can be correlated at places all around the Earth. So it's global correlation. And the boundaries between these different sections, there's usually some sort of major event, like evolution of a new species or 
some sort of chemical layer or, or something that differentiates the two rock layers. And that's how uh, you're able to build up a whole sequence where there's um, layer after layer after layer of different rock strata, each different age with the older ones at the bottom, the younger ones at the top. And that's how we date the age of the Earth. Since we're talking about Earth layering, how else do we date? I know fossil discovery is a big one. So would you mind elaborating on fossil discovery? Sure. So fossil discovery, that falls under biostratigraphy. And this is the opposite of using like um, isotope dating, like radiocarbon and um, the older ones would be like uh, uranium isotopes and so on. But as far as fossils and biostratigraphy, what it is is you would look for something like an index fossil, which is a type of fossil that lives in a very precise amount of time is globally distributed and can be used to correlate different formations. And you're able to figure out that, oh, certain fossils lived at certain times and kind of build a column and figure out, well, if you're finding this type of fossil, then it's going to be a relatively about this age, uh, the, the rocks that contain the fossil. Right. I will say now that, that we talked about biostratigraphy, I kind of want to talk about radiometric dating a little bit. And a funny piece of history was that before the time of Darwin and the postulates of evolution, people literally thought that fossils were aliens raining from the sky above. It's amazing how far we came, but it's, it's, it's really funny to look back and think about what people thought. But yeah, after scientific progression, you know, people began to see differences, like you said, these fossils are relative to the layering of the earth. So that's biostratigraphy. So how about radiometric dating methods? And especially we use radiometric dating methods for igneous rocks, which are one of the three types of rocks. We have igneous, sedimentary, and then metamorphic. So would you mind explaining radiometric dating? So radioactive isotopes decay over time. There's the... So in igneous rock... These spew out and they contain certain elemental abundances. And those elemental abundances have half-lives. So in igneous rock, you can measure and say that it has this certain amount of uranium in it. And over a given period of time, that uranium will always decay at a constant rate, which is its half-life. Once you have the elemental half-life, you know how long it takes for something to decay. And then if you're able to look at igneous rock and measure how much of that element is in the igneous rock, you're able to then say, based off the certain percentage, well, we, we could figure out it's approximately this age. <laughs> that's, that's a really rough explanation. To keep it simple, we find these fossil samples in the field or the dig sites, and then experts take the sample, they configure the specific elements in the sample to date, such as nitrogen-14, argon-40, uh, lead 206 because of natural phenomena, like you said, or beta decay, the experts can trace back to their, like you were saying, using their half-lives to their parent elements. And that kind of tells roughly how old the specimen is. So carbon-14 to nitrogen-14 can take us back roughly 70,000 years because it's the time frame in which it takes carbon-14 to go to nitrogen-14. This is actually the most common and smaller time frame dating method that is used. But for the sake of dating a fossil from, like, say, the Devonian period, which was roughly like 300 million years ago, which is way farther back than it's 70,000 years, we need dating methods, like you said, with uranium. So uranium-238 to lead-206 or 
you know, there's potassium to argon, rubidium to strontium, and many others. But there's differences. A lot of people say that we don't know these things because the dating methods don't go back that far. That's quite inaccurate. We have uranium can stem back for what, at least 10 billion years. I mean, obviously, Earth hasn't been around for 10 billion years, but we have the capability to see back that far. That's why we're able to date asteroid impacts to 4.6 billion years. So let's talk about relevancy, right? Because this is about mass extinctions. Katie, can you quickly define what a mass extinction is and how do we know when a mass extinction occurs in a geologic timescale? A mass extinction event is characterized basically by a great dying in an organism's population in a specific moment in geologic history. Usually what you'll see is a flourishing fossil record of biodiversity and then a sudden decrease in that biodiversity, or you'll find a, a greater number of fossil organisms at a specific time in the rock record. And you can also find other evidence of traumatic earth events in the rock record as well that aren't necessarily associated with a great dying, but that could be found alongside it to provide evidence and insight into what caused such an event to occur. Okay, so it's the evidence pretty much worldwide of fossil drop-off in a species, essentially, and then also the cross-correlation with natural events. Sometimes I think it can be quite ambiguous, though, because not all environments through time provide the right setting for fossilization. But with what information we have, it provides a pretty good conceptualization of what has happened in those timeframes. I know we should move on into the mass extinctions portion of this, but... I think it's really important to ask this, and, and either of you can weigh in on this. Why can't all environments at one time fossilize beings from the past? Just like always, it's a dynamic situation, but doesn't it start with where the specimen gets buried, so to speak? Yes, essentially. Now, I just completed a um, sedimentology and stratigraphy course, so you're in luck. Usually what you'll find is that fossilization percentages are higher in a fluvial or marine environments. So that's going to be floodplains, riverbanks, tidal flats, you know, warm shallow seas, deep marine environments. Because sediment deposition happens at such a rate that something can die and be buried in sediment pretty much in the same day if it's in the right location. Now, the nutrients in the sediment allow for mineral replacement to happen a lot faster than if you're in a dry, arid environment. Now, you can fossilize via petrification or mummification in very dry, sterile environments like caves. We do find a lot of cave bear and cave lion mummies, especially out of Siberia, I've seen in those environments, but largely, you know, you can't just die anywhere and become a fossil. You know, I'm not saying to experiment uh, because that's not a good idea, but largely we find, um, you know, like the Cretaceous deposits that I work in out in the Hell Creek Formation, that was a series of rivers and floodplains, and it's a higher um, volume of fossils there because of that. Right. Like you said, I mean, you have to have the right things happen. And if I'm not mistaken, it takes a long time for fossilization to occur. So any sort of mishap in that totally negates it. Yeah, which is why the rapid sediment deposition really aids in fossilization. And, and the amount of um, an organism that is preserved usually is a lot higher in fluvial marine environments as well. Well, perfect. Just to recap, 
the Earth is about 4.6 billion years old. We know that from various ways of dating rocks, minerals, and examining the Earth's strata, that we can distinguish time frames in the geologic time scale. And with that, along with other means of data, we can find breaks in the fossil record that indicate the following mass extinctions. Oh, and we can't forget that extinctions are monumental in the process of evolution that led to where life is today. So just as a fun tip, or heads up, so to speak, the first three mass extinctions that we'll be talking about here today all took place in the Paleozoic era, or the era of ancient life. This took place between 541 and 252 million years ago, and it was a super crazy time period in Earth's history that began with an explosion of life known as the Cambrian Explosion and ended with almost no life at all, which was the closest that life on Earth ever came to failing. So without further ado, let's talk about the first mass extinction widely recognized by the scientific community the Ordovician Silurian extinction, or more widely known as the Ordovician extinction for short. So Katie, would you like to start us off with a relative time frame and what kinds of life were around at the time of the Ordovician extinction event? Yes. Yeah, so the Ordovician mass extinction happened between the Ordovician and Silurian periods of the Paleozoic, roughly about 445 million years ago, between that and 443 million years ago. And at the time, we were seeing things like crinoids, we're seeing nautiloids, um, coral species. It's a very diverse environment at this time with just some of the wackiest stuff around. I mean, seriously. Right. And even the first land plants began to sprout and spread like super small mosses all across the landscape. Okay, so we should talk about the general consensus of what went down and how much extinction happened. Trevor, would you like to tackle this part? There's a couple different theories, but the prevailing one is that the continent Gondwana, which was the major landmass of the time, moved to the southern hemisphere pretty much at the poles. And what this caused is uh, when you have continental landmass at high latitude, that induces large glacier growth. Glacier growth drops sea level, and anything that was living in a continental sea, or that there were several, it's called um, epicontinental, where it's like little seaways going through the continents, any of the life that was living in there just died because there was sea level drop of about 100 uh, meters. So with Gondwana at the bottom of the planet, really, there was rapid cooling, uh, reduction in the available habitat for organisms, uh, changes in ocean circulation. So as global temperature dropped, there's actually an increase in ocean upwelling. Cold air causes um, more circulation. And this was bad because the organisms at the time were not super adapted to breathing oxygen. And suddenly you're getting a big influx of oxygen in the deep ocean. Kills a lot of... Uh, really uh, fragile organisms like graptolites. Right. Didn't the species at the time also experience a real rapid fall in CO2 levels because of the boom of the land plants as well? So you had that going on. And then also, like you were saying, it, it was just kind of like a, a cascading effect, really. So the, the other theory is that there was a major algae burst and that with algae, when algae dies, it decomposes and... That takes up a lot of carbon. Carbon gets buried in ocean sediments, and that takes it out of the atmosphere, and that causes cooling. And th that's kind of a theory which also led to how glaciers were growing. The subsequent global cooling would have killed a lot of the 
marine life at the time. Yeah, and then also there was like a, a three-phase hypothesis to it. So like I said, the, the falling CO2 levels from the land plants booming, and then you had geologic activity, like you were saying, was extremely active at the time. And then also, this is kind of interesting because this is a little different, but uh, the erosion from all of the geologic activity of the shifts took place and it filled the seas with excess silicates that drove down the dissolved oxygen that like the sea creatures needed to survive more in the seas rather than in the shallow like freshwater bodies but then the third portion was then the climate rapidly warmed with ocean levels rising and it's kind of unclear why to the end part of that but the the fluctuation in the climate was pretty drastic but ultimately led to about approximately 85% of biodiversity disappeared at that time. Yeah, 85% of marine species. Yeah. Before we move on from the Ordovician, how did this event change the course of history? And, you know, anyone could feel free to chime in on it. It really sets up the Silurian. So Ordovician is when plants first appear on the land. Silurian is where they really start to colonize. Along with that, it also sets up the diversification of fish. So that's when fish start to, um, uh, they, they diversify into the groups like the jawed fish and the bony fish. Because prior to that, most of them were jawless. The endemic species, which was the species that were, like you were saying, that were kind of trapped in the waterways in between Gondwana, really perished. But then there were still species that were cosmopolitan, which is, you know, surrounding globally. They were the least affected. So, you know, the species that were hurt were like the brachiopods, the conodonts, the acrotarchs, the trilobites, etc. But really, life in the oceans still kind of looked the same, but gave rise, though, to like you were saying, plant species moving forward, mostly like small mosses and stuff like that. So just to recap before we move on to the next mass extinction, the Ordovician occurred roughly 445 million years ago at the end of the Ordovician period and the beginning of the Silurian period when Gondwana was the major supercontinent at the time, and it resulted in 85% biodiversity loss. Although many species perished, the ecosystem was deemed as quite similar to before the extinction event and gave rise to vascular land plants and pushed the way towards more diversification of fish. So the second mass extinction event was the Devonian extinction. From my research leading up to this, I found that this is an event still in hot debate in the science community due to it being over a really long period of time with a series of events rather than just like a couple. A lot of sources differ on how many events occurred. But what I do know is that these events stacked up to create a large disappearance. So, Trevor, when did the Devonian extinction take place and what was life like around that time? Okay, so the Devonian period lasted from 419 to 359 million years ago. And the extinction is remarkable because it lasts from 375 to 359 million years ago. So that's about 20 to 25 million years and because of that, it's been called not a true mass extinction. And th this is because usually mass extinction will happen in less than 5 million years, usually less than 1 million years. And this one, it lasts for a long time, and it, they can't really pinpoint a single event that caused it. And another thing that uh, should be considered when calling the Devonian a mass extinction or not is that 
instead of high levels of extinction, you actually see low levels of origination. So there was not as much diversification during the Devonian. And because of that, the number of uh, species and families and uh, genus that are on the planet Earth at one time, it wasn't that they were dying, it's just that there weren't as many that were evolving. And that somewhat distorts the data, and it, it makes it hard to pinpoint exactly, is this an extinction or is it a slow diversification period? As for what was living at the time, large amphibians, those were first coming to land. Uh, there were jawed fish. First sharks. They made their appearance. Sharks, yes. I also have notes here that said that the arthropods took shape for the first time. Like you said, it wasn't like a harsh diversification. You saw, you know, some insects and then the first types of spiders, but it wasn't like a boom or anything. I also see here that like trees were kind of front and center and then land plant species uh, creating like canopies for the first time and, and changing some global ecosystems. And then also there was, like you said, the tetrapods or animals with four limbs uh, began to evolve in the shorelines and stuff. So there was that. Okay. So that brings, I guess, the next question, Katie, what happened in the Devonian extinction and how much loss did Earth see during that time, that huge time period? So as Trevor said, there is huge debate amongst uh, geologists and, and paleontologists alike because there's really no one thing we can pinpoint anything to. Uh, now, there are a lot of theories as far as this extinction event goes, such as excessive sedimentation rates, rapid global warming um, or cooling, maybe a series of meteorite impacts and periods of widespread anoxic sedimentation, which basically meant that little to no amounts of oxygen at times were, were being dissolved in the oceans, which did deprive marine life of the oxygen that they did need to survive. It is still fiercely debated because it, and because it did take so long. I mean, there's really no one thing that we can really focus in on. Yeah. One of the leading factors for how they knew that there was like a real reoxygenation rate problem was that they found large black shale deposits. Yeah, that's very characteristic of low oxygen environments. You see that a lot. Yeah. And then there was bolide craters, including an impact in present day Sweden that is roughly about 40 miles in diameter. That's kind of linked to the middle Devonian. So it's not even the late Devonian. They People claim that the, the late Devonian was really the time where, if anything, that's when things happen. Yeah. One of the preferred hypotheses is that um, during the mid to late Devonian, that was when you got the first widespread forests. These are called uh, Archaeopteris trees. And forests uh, that take a lot of carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, and eventually when the trees die, they get buried. And, well, normally, like today, when a tree dies, it gets broken down by microbes and so on. But at the time, those microbes, they had not evolved yet. When all the trees start dying, they just get buried, and that takes a lot of carbon out of the atmosphere. And this contributes to global cooling, as well as just the introduction of plant life on land causes a lot of silicate weathering. And that's been um, implicated with the formation of those black shales that you were mentioning earlier, where silicates, they weather out, they get transported through river systems into the oceans, and eventually that carbon gets deposited in the bottom of oceans as black shale. That's good. I'm glad you were able to explain that. 
Yeah, I think it's really cool because, I mean, I don't find fossil fuel use cool, but I find it interesting, the the link between like the Devonian and, and moving forward where you had these trees and there was nothing to break them down, like you said. Microbes or fungi, they just, they didn't evolve to be able to break down lignin, which is the tough part of trees, how it makes it stand. And essentially... That's what we're using today for fossil fuels is the trees that were dying in that time where nothing was there to do anything about it. And uh, I want to make a note before we move on here that it's estimated between 70 and 80 percent of Devonian species disappeared. And oh, I want to hear your take on it. I, it's not far-fetched, but it's far-fetched in the aspect of if you align all of these uh, mass extinction events together and look at their, their probable causes – there was talk about the possibility of gamma ray bursts from a nearby star supernova Have you ever heard of that? More for the Ordovician than Devonian. Okay, I saw it for the Devonian. I'm like, maybe they're just copy-pasting because, like we said, there's so many different things that happen that it kind of leaves it wide open. Uh, the thinking there is that it causes species die-off, but it also causes nitrogen and oxygen to form nitrogen dioxide just smog covers up the earth and <laughs> that's what causes the extinction uh hard to prove though very hard to prove right i guess and to wrap up do we know the general consensus of how the devonian extinction changed the course of history uh, to rephrase like what was the carboniferous period like because that's what followed the devonian well, largely the answer with following any of these mass extinctions, really, the biggest answer on what the effect was after the extinction is just that more ecological niches opened up, which allowed for further diversification of species. And especially during the Carboniferous, we see that huge boom, like I said, with terrestrial species, uh, particularly plant species, as well as insects and arthropods. They get really, really big during the Carboniferous period. Yeah, that's right. And one other thing that I found to add on to that was that coral reefs, because of the dissolved oxygen issue during this time period, the coral reefs rapidly diminished. And they were said that they didn't return roughly for 145 million years in the Triassic period. So that's something quite interesting as well. And that really affects a lot of the oceanic species. Nowhere to hide. So they got open water for predators. All right. So no one has anything more to add to the first two mass extinctions in the Paleozoic era. We're going to wrap up the first segment and head to commercial break. So when we come back, Katie, Trevor, and I will be addressing the Permian and Triassic-Jurassic extinctions. Stay tuned. Have you ever been standing in the shower looking at the ingredients on your shampoo bottle and noticed that water is always the first ingredient? Well, I have. After a little research, I discovered that shampoo is over 80% water which is kind of like dumping bottled water on your head while you're standing in a shower. And that's why I'm excited that I found Seabar, a disposable plastic free hair care line that cleans up ocean trash with every purchase. Not only does Seabar pick up one pound of ocean trash for every item ordered, but their salon quality shampoo and conditioner concentrates come from refillable applicators, kind of like deodorant tubes. Just twist them up, rub it on over your hair a couple times, and then just lather it up like you normally would. My favorite part is how long they last. I've personally been using the same C-Bar for three months now and I've barely used any. So not only does it help save the environment, it's also effective, efficient, and most importantly, it saves me money. 
If you would like to try a better way to wash your hair, head on over to cbar.com and use our special code STEAM for 15% off your first order. Seabar, shampoo done right for you and the planet. What's going on, everyone? Welcome back to the second segment of Earth's Mass Extinctions, where we will be discussing the Permian and Triassic-Jurassic mass extinctions. Please do us a favor and fill out the poll at the end of the show on which extinction event you thought was the most interesting. We always appreciate your feedback. So for this first portion, we'll wrap up the Paleozoic era where continents shifted into the supercontinent known as Pangaea, or they started to, and gave rise to the Permian extinction, or more commonly known as the Great Dying. Okay, Katie, when did the Permian extinction occur roughly, and what was life like before the event? So the Permian mass extinction occurred roughly about 252 million years ago. And at this time, you know, we're seeing the first of the earliest reptile and mammal ancestors in synapsids and therapsids. At this time, life was, as I'm going to put it very informally, very wonky looking. Everything almost looked like an alien species, especially looking at something like Dimetrodon, which was actually a uh, synapsid more closely related to mammals than reptiles. So we're seeing a lot of that. There was a lot of biodiversity during the Permian. Let me add on to that, because you said about the synapsids and the reptiles. Uh, a lot of people don't realize that that's part of the amniotes, and they're just tetrapods or animals with four legs that could lay shelled eggs. So it was a whole new thing that occurred. Things before that were just putting out gushy eggs. And then they're like, well, now we're on land, so we have to have something to protect it and keep moisture around. So, and then also the fact that whenever Pangaea was starting to form, you were starting to see a more of an uninhabitable climate because, you know, it was just huge. It was a huge supercontinent. Perfect. So Trevor, what events led to the Great Dying and how much biodiversity perished? All right, the Great Dying. So it's got that name for a reason. 70% of land species and 95% of marine species go extinct during the Great Dying. About 90% total. So life is almost wiped out. And this happened in a really brief period of time, about 200,000 years. And the cause is thought to be volcanic activity. So in Siberia, they found what's called a large igneous province in the Siberian traps. And what that is, is there was a uh, pulse of magma, big pulse of magma it, that bloomed through the mantle and melted the Earth's crust. This is an underground eruption. And what it does is when it melts the Earth's crust, it melts a lot of organic material that's been stored away within the continental landmass. This organic material is high in carbon, high in uh, methane, also high in uh, halocarbons. So as these melt, it releases a whole lot of gases, and it causes major issues for the environment because now th there's tremendous increase in carbon levels in the atmosphere. Halocarbons disrupt the ozone layer, and there's just widespread global warming, ocean acidification, and also what's called ocean anoxia, so decrease in oxygen in the oceans. So just very bad time to be alive. Oh, yeah. To add to that real quick, you talked about the biomass and how this real mass of heat because of the volcanic activity released all the carbon into the air. So because of Pangaea coming together, 
like it was super arid. The the moisture from oceans couldn't make it inland. And you've seen a lot of the Carboniferous forests just fall down. So that contributed to all the biomass that you were just talking about in the release of the carbon content into the atmosphere. So that's a good link. The other really interesting note is that um, the few areas that weren't arid desert in the middle of Pangaea, they were covered with these, um, it's called Glossopterus. It's like a wetland tree. And normally when a mass extinction happens, it's always the oceans that get hit the hardest. In the Permian, though, what happened was that the Glossopterus trees, the, these wetlands, just get annihilated first, and then the oceans have later effects and mass extinction. And the, the reason uh, that this was, was between the whole atmospheric disruption, these trees just couldn't survive. And they were only able to really continue in small refuges, like in Antarctica. So all these forests are just lost. There's now widespread wildfires, enhanced erosion with the loss of forests, a lot of weathering, screwing up the carbon cycle in the oceans, and that just leads to just widespread extinction. Oh, that's a great point, and I want to add on to that. The oceans are the largest carbon sink that we have on Earth, and whenever you have a lot of carbon content going into the atmosphere, that's why seas get affected so much, because they just suck in the carbon out of the atmosphere and then not enough dissolved oxygen. So it's kind of cool, you know, you get to look back and see all these correlations. And it's also really interesting that like, it's never truly one thing that does it. It's always like something that triggers something else. And then it's just a cascading effect, especially with this one. It's crazy. I mean, life got sucker punched in all angles. I know this is also hotly debated, and it's something to also add on to the cascading effect, that there was a crater off the coast of present-day Australia that was dated at the end of the Permian extinction about 250 million years ago. NASA reported this, that this asteroid could have been up to six miles in diameter. And there was core samples taken at the submarine site that showed strong evidence of shocked minerals because that's what happens. You get shocked minerals from these disgustingly high-energy impacts. It's just an extra piece to the puzzle. But what you were talking about is already widely accepted i haven't heard about the <laughs> yeah no but, i haven't either yeah. oh really interesting i actually talked about it in the previous podcast and um we did a thing on you know thoughts of armageddon what what kind of events would create an armageddon and i talked about extraterrestrial impacts and that was one of them I'm like well it's hotly debated and there's all this evidence but like it didn't really matter <laughs> because it was already really terrible <laughs> So, I mean, it could have even been the icing on the cake. It just creates a, a nuclear winter. Everything that you said, like all the greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, and then the forest fires on top of that, just be a nasty time to be alive. <laughs> so we have this mass biodiversity loss, about 90-ish percent. What was the result of pretty much the timescale moving forward? What, what did we get out of the Permian extinction? My answer to that is going to be pretty much about the same as what I said last time. And really, it's a trend with every single mass extinction and the way that life just bounces back. More ecological niches open up, and especially at the end of the Permian going into Triassic. This allows for the evolution of you know the earliest dinosaurs, uh, crocodiles, relatives of mammals and lizards. Again, another huge boom uh, in biodiversity and new life that had not yet been seen before on the planet. 
Yeah. So like the first mammals kind of came out of that, even with 10% left. I've got a really good point on this one. Please. Okay. So Katie, you mentioned in the Permian, there were the reptile ancestors, the archosaurs. There's the mammal ancestors, the synapsids. Throughout the early and the middle Permian, synapsids are reigning dominant, far more than the archosaurs are. Permian extinction happens, and it flips. Now the archosaur ancestors and the dinosaurs, they take off. Why did the mammals not survive? Or, well, they survived, but what, why didn't they do as well? Well, this is going to show my medical background. It's really exciting. <laughs> so, mammals have inefficient lungs. We breathe in, air stops, then we have to breathe out. In reptile ancestors, in archosaurs, they have lungs where they could breathe in and it's a continuous flow. So it's much more efficient. So reptile ancestors, during this time of uh, just tremendous anoxia and uh, even on the surface hypoxia, where just there's decreased oxygen levels and all this smog and such in the air, archosaurs, the dinosaurs' ancestors, they could breathe better. <laughs> That's why the mammals, they're living in these little burrows, whereas the dinosaurs, they, they go in the next couple hundred million years, they're living. <laughs> they're reigning supreme. Ah, interesting. Well, there you have it. So far, we've talked about the Paleozoic era extinctions, ending with the Permian extinction. The cool thing about this era is that even though life almost nearly vanished, it progressed from simple, small marine organisms to organisms that conquered the land and seas. The rise of trees, vascular plants, arthropods, tetrapods, and fish appeared and flourished for the very first time. For the next two extinction events, we have to exit the Paleozoic and enter the Mesozoic era, or more commonly known as the Age of Reptiles. The first mass extinction event in the Mesozoic that we are about to cover is formally dubbed as the Triassic-Jurassic extinction. So Trevor, can you give some insight to when the Triassic-Jurassic extinction took place and what life was like before the event? All right. Well, um, Triassic was a harsh time. Not as harsh as the Permian, but life had still not quite recovered. Pangaea was still largely a single gigantic continent. The Entriaxic extinction is occurring at 201 million years ago. And slightly before the end of the Triassic, so during the Carnian and Norian stages, that's where we start to see the origin of dinosaurs. So we got small bipedal dinosaurs like um, Coelophysis, that's the famous one everybody sees in the documentaries. <laughs> and you also still see the holdouts from the Permian. So synapsids, uh, in particular, the descendants of Lystrosaurus, these big, large mammals that were very not specialized. <laughs> That's why they were able to survive so well. And that they were just living on like, all three of the southern hemisphere continents, or four. <laughs> Four of them. So, roughly about 210 million years ago, we saw the first ever vertebrates began to fly, and they were the, the pterosaurs, which is quite revolutionary. And then also behind the scenes, like we talked about, we still had small and furry little land animals running around with flowering plants. Flowering plants began to surface at this time as well. So, there were some things happening in the background, but like you said, this is dominantly 
reptilian. So Katie, what the heck happened to make life suffer? And how much suffering did they encounter? At least from what I was seeing in the research that I did, largely this mass extinction occurred because of climate change and rising sea levels. There was also a series of volcanic eruptions in is what is called um, the Central Atlantic uh, Magmatic Province, which resulted in releasing of, of large amounts of, of CO2 into the atmosphere, which, as we discussed earlier, leads to anoxic conditions in, in marine environments. In any ways, too, as, as Trevor was saying, the environment hadn't quite yet fully recovered anyways from the previous events of the Permian extinction. It was still very much in the process of bouncing back. There were still large regions of arid climates, which made it increasingly difficult to um, get through any actual event that happened that would be challenging for life on Earth. And also at this time, the rifting of the supercontinent Pangaea was occurring at this time, uh, which also released large amounts of CO2, um, which the exact number, again, is still debated. Nothing is necessarily set in stone, but they're thinking up to you know, people who have done more extensive research on this than I, um, up to 100,000 gigatons, which is a huge amount to be releasing anywhere. Well, I guess for the biodiversity loss, it's estimated it was roughly about 75% of all marine and land-dwelling organisms. Is that the line? So back to Pangaea, the supercontinent, it was still intact, but also breaking up at the same time. Uh, obviously, it takes a very long time for that to occur, but it's quite fascinating because the reptilian ancestors who survived the Permian only knew of one singular continent. So a lot of species became landlocked and surrounded by oceans. So it was like just a whole new thing, too, that was just happening. And being landlocked is genetically bad as well, on top of, like you said, everything that's going on in the atmosphere and, and uh, the rise in temperature. It has a lot of effects. Temperature has a lot of effects it just in terms of um, genetics itself. So only being able to breed with a certain selection a small pool, and then also having the warming effects can be quite devastating to a species on top of all the other environmental things that are going on. So how did this event change the course of history, though, at least moving forward in the Mesozoic era? I know pterosaurs, dinosaurs, and other reptiles were free to just really take advantage of the ecosystems. Yeah, it just really freed up the... <laughs> <laughs> the ecosystems, because mammals, they were already hard hit by the Permian extinction. They get hit again by the Triassic one. A lot of the surviving archosaurs that were not dinosaurs go extinct, so like phytosaurs, which is um, a type of crocodile-looking uh, reptile, not related to crocodiles. They go extinct, just dinosaurs. <laughs> they have an open field. Yeah. Can I point out that Sharks are still going strong here. <laughs> I love that. The sharks have been around for so long. <laughs> it's so cool. Um, I hope that they survive this one. <laughs> but anyways, just to recap before we move on, the Triassic-Jurassic extinction took place about 201 million years ago, the end of the Triassic, due to global volcanic activity and the start of the breakup of the supercontinent Pangaea. Roughly 75% of the biodiversity suffered during this event and paved the way for the rest of the Mesozoic era. 
or the age of the reptiles. Unfortunately, the age of the reptiles, though, came to an end. And the event that is most famously known by most individuals, especially our dinosaur fanatics, was the KT or KPG extinction, an expanded form, the Cretaceous Paleogene extinction. So when we come back from commercial break, we will finish out the Mesozoic era with the most famous and recent mass extinction. And then to end the episode, we'll talk about what we are dealing with on Earth right now. So stay tuned. Like what you hear? Do us a favor by giving us a follow, review, and share our content on social media. Everything Steam is conveniently on Twitter, Instagram, Reddit, Facebook, and TikTok. You can listen to our episodes that will feature on platforms such as Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Breaker. If you, the listener, have any content suggestions or want to be a guest star on the show, reach out to Everything Steam via social media, our Contact Us page on our website, or email us at all lowercase everythingsteam3.14 at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you and stay curious. Welcome back to the final segment of Earth's Mass Extinctions. Katie, Trevor, and I plan to cover the most recent mass extinction, the KT or KPG extinction, and then round out the episode discussing the Holocene and or the Anthropocene epics. You know, they're, they're essentially leading to another mass extinction label, but we'll get to that here in a little bit. So let's jump right in and start discussing the KT or KPG extinction event. Katie, when did this all take place and in what did life on Earth look like before the living beings at the time faced this tragedy? So the KPG extinction occurred roughly about 66 million years ago. And at this point in time, we are seeing about the last of the dinosaur species. Towards the end of the Cretaceous period, uh, biodiversity had actually started to uh, decrease. We stopped seeing some of the larger animals as well as some of the smaller animals mainly due to the fact that the larger uh, organisms on the planet, especially the larger dinosaurs, required a lot of food, energy, land, just space in general, and couldn't have those requirements fit as they needed. They eventually basically hit a dead end with where they were able to go as far as growing and evolving and diversifying. And eventually that did all come to a head, um, with what jump-started the KPG mass extinction event, which there are several theories, but there is one largely accepted theory, which is the impact, the Shiksalub um, impactor, or just the KPG impactor, which is the giant asteroid or meteorite to have taken out the dinosaurs. Yeah. One other thing I think is really cool is that the Paravian dinosaurs bursted onto the scene, or now commonly known as the first bird species. So... And then also the Cretaceous period saw the first appearances of flowering species about 130 million years ago. Really neat. And then also, I kind of want to make a cross-reference to the Living with Wildfires episode that we did. So at the time, there's correlation between what the dinosaurs were doing and then what prescribed burns do with our forests today. Because primarily, the forests at that time were coniferous forests. They weren't flowering trees or anything going on. But really, they, like you said, their huge diets were just mowing down everything. They were doing the job what prescribed burns do today. So it's kind of interesting to see that. So I know you kind of touched on it a little bit 
on what caused the KPG extinction. But Trevor, would you mind adding to that? And then how much death came out of the event? A uh, rock hit the earth. Rock hit the earth. Fair point. Yeah, pretty much. Okay, a uh, uh, little bit more complex. Uh, asteroid or bolide crashes into the Yucatan Peninsula, causes the Chicxulub Crater. Um, in particular, the area that it hit was a shallow sea, a carbonate platform. So when it hits, it causes high amounts of um, calcium carbonate and calcium sulfate to go into the air. This results in an enormous dust cloud to go pretty much around the Earth. It causes a tidal wave that just <laughs> goes over most of North America. You know, it's actually funny. They found evidence to the tidal waves, estimated about 1,500 meters. Because no, this thing hits in, in the Yucatan, but they see, like, the tidal wave, it, it, it went as far as, like, Montana. Wow. Where they're finding fossils of fish, and they're all arranged in, the, like, a same parallel pattern. <laughs> and the, the thinking is, oh, well, these fish, they all got swept by the wave. Wow. Oh, yeah. So tremendous amounts of carbon and sulfur in the atmosphere. It causes, similar to a nuclear winter, none of the nuclear, though. Winter around the planet, massive die-offs in algae, marine environments. Eventually, the terrestrial environments get affected. And if you're something big that has a tremendous impact on the environment, like a dinosaur, it's a really bad day. <laughs> right. Plants need to photosynthesize. If they can't get, you know, solar radiation they can survive. And that's, it affects the herbivores, it affects the carnivores, and then finally the scavengers. And, and the continuation of Pangea breaking up at the time was also in the background, obviously, but it was an addition. These events are just a bunch of things happening. But then there's always just like the icing on the cake, like the Chickslub crater. But yeah, like we said, the aftermath was probably more important than the impact itself and that's widely theorized because like you said it created the nuclear winter and then nothing could it just screwed biodiversity so it's important to say that about 75 percent of the world's species disappeared over time wildfires occurred because there's so much energy and heat spelled into the atmosphere that it dries everything up and then it doesn't take much of anything to create a wildfire. I'll say it again, just like I said in the last episode. We're creating megafires from tire friction on dry leaves in a field. Just imagine what an impact can do, all the heat spell from that. So since this is the last mass extinction event that the science community has uncovered, and that was about 65 million years ago, how did that push life to evolve to where it is today? And what was its aftermath? So what we just talked about ties into this with the larger animals, uh, namely the dinosaurs, were hit very hard because of their size. At this point, especially due to the chain reaction from the impactor, they just did not have the resources to continue on the way that they did. However, because most of the ecological niches were filled with dinosaurs and large related reptiles, there were some small mammals uh, that did survive this chain reaction. And because they were on the smaller end, they didn't have the chance to evolve to be larger because, like I said, those niches were already filled by the larger dinosaurs. This did give them a chance to persist and push forward 
And it basically gave them leeway to evolve in, as we went into the tertiary and become megafauna later on down the line. Like I said, uh, the answer to most of these is going to be that new ecological niches open up. And this is especially true at the, uh, the KPG um, extinction event, because we do see the great dying of the dinosaurs, which does open up for mammals. Yeah. Also for flowering plants, they really thrived in the aftermath. They actually utilized the nutrients from the volcanic ash and the disappearance of many coniferous species to spread. One great example is the evolution of the Amazon rainforest. Prior to the KPG, it was mostly, like I said, mowed down coniferous species that the dinosaurs just devoured. And then, like you said, mammals and smaller reptilians survived, but the mammals were able to take advantage and become the megafauna. And a couple notable species that we will still have from the Mesozoic, like the crocodiles, alligators, birds, and sharks. So that's kind of what came out of the KPG. What, do you have anything else to add, Trevor? It was end of an era. Loss of the dinosaurs, loss of all the pterosaurs, flying reptiles, loss of all marine reptiles except uh, turtles, loss of the ammonites. Those things survived a whole long time. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, they were alive for a very, very long time. It's really interesting to see what survived and what didn't. This is kind of unrelated, and I'm just kind of curious. Based on your backgrounds and what you're really excited about, when you grew up, were you playing with toy dinosaurs? I have an entire shelf back here uh, full of 50 or so of dinosaur figurines that are newer and stuff that I have had since I was three years old. I have always had a fascination with specifically, I can't get it on camera, the Cretaceous. It's been my focus um, my whole life. So yes, uh, I did play Mass Extinction as a child a lot. Interesting. How about you, Trevor? Oh, I'd set up big armies and have the, the dinosaurs fight each other. T-Rex always wins. <laughs> <laughs> oh my. I love that. I mean, he asked you. He's the king. Yeah, and then my mom gave all those toys away. Oh, man. <laughs> no, my heart. I'm on a working hypothesis that, like, whatever you play with as a kid, it really shapes you as a human being. Yeah, it does. Like, I grew up with space stuff. I was huge with Star Wars. I had so many Star Wars things. Played all the video games, Lego, just all of it. And I just am in love with space. So a lot of the facts that I've threw out today are just space related because that's just I grew up enjoying and loving space. So I just figured I'd ask. I thought it was a cool tidbit there. So on the geologic timescale, we've covered about 450 million years of the 4.6 billion years that the Earth has existed. We've covered the Ordovician, the Late Devonian, the Permian, the Triassic, Jurassic, and most recently, the KPG extinction. But let's shift the focus to a more current time frame, one that we're currently living in, the Holocene epoch. Maybe it would be best to explain the difference between the Holocene and the Anthropocene epochs because many people within the science community have mixed opinions on whether the Anthropocene should exist and should all be dubbed the Holocene or the Holocene transitioning into the Anthropocene. There's, there's kind of like two things there and the dates are ever shifting. Ultimately, both of them have to do with the age of human intervention with the natural environment. 
So how about we start off this by explaining the difference between the Holocene and the Anthropocene? Trevor, would you like to provide some insight there? The Holocene is the last accepted epic or uh, division of time, uh, and it's also the current one. It started about 11,000 or 12,000 years ago, and it pretty much entails human activity on Earth. Anthropocene is a proposed epic, uh, a new division in the geologic time scale. It's not universally accepted, but what it's thought is that it uh, shows that humans are having an impact on the environment and that this is measurable in the stratigraphic layer, either different dates are proposed, like the start of the agricultural revolution, the industrial revolution, some even as late as like the 1940s or 60s. It's got a bunch of different markers because it's still proposed. The reason it's mostly controversial, though, is because if you look at the rock strata, normally you're able to have a pretty clear division where you're able to say, well, th this is the layer between like Jurassic and Cretaceous, and then there's like Cretaceous and Paleocene. Differentiating Holocene from Anthropocene is really hard because it's like, where do you start to mark human impact that where it's measurable in the, the layer of rocks? Agreed. And also, like you said about that 12,000 year date, the Younger Dryas was about 12,000 or 11,700 years ago. That was around the time in which we noticed clear evidence of humans being able to do agriculture for the first time. Whether that's 100% accurate, not really. Like you said, the dates are still shifting. They could have been doing it in the Younger Dryas, but it's still out there. There's still a lot of exploring to do. So if we broke them up, and just to recap, the Holocene would mark the beginning of, of human intervention with lighter impacts to the natural environment, whereas the Holocene then ramps up in the intervention magnitude and transitions into the Anthropocene, where humans take advantage of fossil fuels and create pollution in many forms like methane and CO2 and plastic polymers, <laughs> you name it, really. So that pushes me to a very important subtopic. And Katie, would you mind expanding on this? How is the present time frame compared to extinctions of the past that we previously discussed in this episode? So uh, currently, you know, of course, the biggest concern as of right now is global warming that we're experiencing. The global temperature rise uh, over the past even decade is notable. It's measurable and it's there, as well as the decreasing biodiversity. You know, more than 50% of uh, bug species have disappeared since 1970, which was only 52 years ago, starting this year. Uh, amphibian populations are vanishing as well. We're, we're starting to see it where the smaller populations, insect populations, are, are starting to go away. And again, coupled with the greenhouse gas effect and global warming. And it, it is measurable. It's tangible. We have the data to show that there is a difference. Right. And honestly, it's it's not the first time that organisms have caused extinction events, because as we said, the late Devonian and the Ordovician plants were a huge causation of extinction. But this is the first time that Animalia has contributed on a large scale. And also just to jump off what you were saying there real quick, the 1970s was only five decades ago. That's not even a full lifetime of a human being today. So kind of scary. It's very rapid. It is. Yeah. 
let's maybe finish with a general consensus about the mass extinction that stares us in the face. Because we've stated over 50% of biodiversity across the board has been lost just since the 1970s. So let's be realists for a second. What is coming and what have we seen so far that is causing such life loss? I know you talked about greenhouse gases, but there's a lot. Like we've talked about throughout the entire episode, it's interconnected. Whenever you have one thing, it affects another. Uh, That's just how the ecosystem works. There is a whole lot going on. Uh, Disease, particularly prevalent today. (laughs) Invasive species, wildfire, habitat destruction, hunting, just biochemical cycle disruption. Yeah, uh, oceanic acidification, erosion, you know, habitat destruction, deforestation, industrial farming, including crops and livestock. I think it's 70 or 80 billion livestock and only like seven to eight billion people. It's a lot of livestock. We have industrial and residential land use. So there's a lot of things, but like, I guess we should talk about even just the possible outcomes, what we could see. I, I know you said an increase in epidemics. That's one. Listen to the viral epidemiology episode. We talk about that. One other thing we actually talked about previously, there was a huge loss in biomass or microbes in the earth. And we're seeing that right now. There's a huge loss in the wood wide web between plants and fungi. Um, Wherever you dig up earth, you disrupt that biome, the microbiome. And the microbiome is so important to plant development. It's one of the main reasons why agriculture is just terrible, other than the herbicides, pesticides, what have you. Fresh water scarcity, that's huge. We're using so much fresh water and not getting any back. I think a third of the earth's human population is in trouble in terms of not having constant, fresh, treated water. There's the change in, in sea levels, which is huge. We're going to get global immigration on a scale that we've never seen before because there's seven to eight billion of us. And oh, correct me if I'm wrong, but there is a lot of people living on coastlines. So we're going to be facing that. And one thing that I have to deal with as a structural engineer, and one thing that I'm trying to get involved with, hopefully at some point in time, is just trying to do low-cost housing appropriately for people that have to relocate from all this. Is there anything else that you'd like to add to that? I mean, it sounds daunting, but there's some things in there that I think we can tackle. At the pace of modern technology means that there's innovations that are rising up to meet these challenges. It's going to be a process. It'll be hard. But I think we as a species can do it. I agree. It's good to be optimistic about these things. On a technological aspect, carbon capture is something I'm very hopeful for, as well as ideas for implementing carbon taxation and water taxation. I mean, economics literally drives the decisions that we make as human beings. So if we can make it economically viable to be greener, it's a win. I also like that there are efforts to guide upcoming first world countries towards a greener approach rather than what China the US, Russia, they did in their industrial revolutions. I'll say one more thing and I'll leave it to you, Katie. I like the fact that in a short period, people outside of science, the science community are talking about this. 
with publicity, there comes attention. With attention, there comes a fad. With a fad, there comes a movement. And I think we are either in the beginning or in the midst of that movement. And I hope it just keeps building. It has to. So, Katie, what's your optimism? Well, I like to look back on the past to look towards the future because it is just the truth that history does repeat itself. And especially something that we've learned from looking at these mass extinction events is, yes, there's a trend uh, with climate change and, um, you know, ocean acidification that seems to follow with every single mass extinction. Of course, you know, they do all have their own quirks (laughs) and things that were going on in their time. But the thing to remember with that is that with each of the five major mass extinctions on this planet, including the Permian mass extinction, the Great Dying, that nearly wiped out all life on Earth, life has bounced back every single time. Every single time, even though that there was a major hit to Earth organisms, we bounce back, you know, we in a sense of Earth's life. I I think that at one point it will come to a bottleneck again with a mass extinction, but something to remember is we are not the first species on this earth and we won't be the last. We can do it if we work together as a species. Not every single human has to be on board, but enough have to be on board and want to change in order to get these programs to work. And I think, especially in the younger generations, I'm part of the older side of Generation Z, and we're starting to see Generation Alpha. And I have noticed that generally, um, these generations, I should say, are more socially and environmentally aware, which is something that is, I think, by uh, technological advances, especially uh, in social media, where we are able to contact other people from one side of the world to another. We can share our experiences, share our worries, and also share our efforts in cleaning up any messes and getting things back on track. And social media, too, is a great platform for communities and people who think alike to get together, plan things out, have a plan. So I think it's going to be a huge component in in getting things together, both, you know, technology, all of technology, you know, with our scientific advancements and our social advances. I think we'll be fine. We just have to get from point A to point B and point A to point B may be a process, but it is definitely a challenge we can overcome. My optimism comes from a broader physics-based perspective coined by my man, Erwin Schrodinger. Life is the process of pushing back against entropy or energy dissipation. With the right settings such as we've had on Earth, particles become chemistry, and chemistry becomes biology to form pockets of life, consuming energy to function. So no matter the cataclysmic event on Earth, the planets of Alpha Centauri, the Kepler systems, life will continue to unfold. So fear not, life will prevail. So I'd like to say thank you, Trevor. Thank you, Katie. It was great having you both on. We shared a lot of really interesting tidbits and points about what's happened in our past. I think it's some really interesting and and exciting information. And I hope it gets people, you know, thinking about what happened and what's to come. Thank you. It's been great. Thanks for having me on. That is all for this episode on Earth's Mass Extinctions. Now I'd like to give a big shout out to my guest stars, Katie and Trevor, for sharing their knowledge and vast expertise. I would also love to mention my amazing team here for their collective efforts to make the show happen. 
As I mentioned before in the episode, please do us a favor and give us some feedback by filling out the community poll for which extinction you thought was most fascinating. Or heck, even send us an email or DM us what your thoughts are. We are always looking to engage with our followers. But hey, if you want to learn more, or if you are really interested in fossils, paleo art, discovery, and much more, give Katie a follow on Instagram at katie.digs.dinos or Trevor at TTF underscore prefectus. If you love what you're hearing, my team and I would appreciate it if you threw us some spare change every once in a while so we can continue to make this show better and better for you. To do this, head to our website, everythingsteam.org, and click on the donate button in the top right corner or go to our support us page. Whichever you choose works for us. Or if you really want to, you can slide me some dough via Venmo. My tag is at ProZoomStudent. We are honored to serve you as your source for STEAM information. Thank you all for listening to Everything STEAM. I'm your host, Sam Stanford. And as always, stay curious. Everything STEAM would like to give a shout out to Anchor by Spotify for sponsoring our podcast along with Ben Cell Music for providing our show with intro, outro, and advertising background rhythm.